A custody evaluation can be a very important part of a litigated custody dispute. My guest here today is Dr. Aaron Robb. He is the program director and owner of Forensic Counseling Services, and he is often called upon to conduct a custody evaluation. He's here today to speak with us about what a custody evaluation is, how people can best prepare for a custody evaluation, and what to expect in the process. Dr. Robb, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. It's great to be here, Jennifer. Um, so I just want to start off with asking you to kind of give us a definition. What is a custody evaluation? Well, fundamentally, uh, if we think back to middle school, it's a compare and contrast assignment. You've got multiple parents who are each saying, here's what I want to have the world look like moving forward. And we're tasked by the court as mental health professionals who are also familiar with the law to say, all right, what seems to be best for the child in question there? Uh, sometimes it's parent A has got a good plan. Sometimes it's parent B has got a good plan. Often there's a little bit from each that you can craft together to say, actually, here's where the child would benefit the most if we can get folks working together to co-parent effectively. And if we can't, here's a good fallback setup. So you just mentioned mental health professionals. And so a lot of times I know my clients may ask, well, let's just have the child's therapist mm -hmm. Uh, make a recommendation to the court. And so before we kind of delve into the other aspects of the custody evaluation, let's talk about the role of the custody evaluator. What kind of qualifications do you have to have? And you know, can, can just any therapist be working as a custody evaluator in a case? Well, to start off with, somebody who is a therapist already involved with a family can't uh, do a custody evaluation. There are a huge number of ethical considerations that go along with that, but the biggest one is the duty that's held to the family and to the child uh, for treatment versus a psycholegal assessment. Uh, and they start off very different. They're asking very different kinds of questions. Uh, and so once you're involved with a family as a therapist, you don't have the same perspective as somebody coming in as a custody evaluator is gonna have. Uh, they're radically different roles. Often the question of what recommendation gets overlooked when people are saying that. If you've got a therapist who is making a recommendation for a particular dyslexia treatment program, that's well within a treating therapist's wheelhouse. If they're making possession and access recommendations, parenting time recommendations, that falls outside of the scope of the data that they've got. Um, custody evaluators are trained uh, on advanced psycholegal issues, which is to say there are hundreds of pages of law-related issues that we've got to be aware of about how we structure an evaluation, about uh, how we get information from outside. Uh, somebody who is seeing a kiddo and getting one parent's information uh, is not necessarily going to have the full picture of what's going on. And a custody evaluator has access to child protective services records, uh, law enforcement records, and they're going to get a much broader look at what's happening with the family system. So I think I think that's really important. And a lot of times what we see is, I mean, you know, in, in a treat, in the role of being a, a treatment um, therapist, mm -hmm. you're developing a different kind of bond with the family, with the child, and really you, in your role as a as a custody evaluator, you're you're mm -hmm. not coming at it from that perspective, right? Yeah. You have a very 
disattached uh, kind of perspective. Yes, it goes back to the compare and contrast issue. A therapist is advocating for what they are hearing in session. Often you hear a therapist will say, well, we take clients as they come to us, as they are. Not all the time are clients presenting accurately in therapy. Uh, oftentimes people lack insight about what's going on in their lives. And so they're impaired in their insight into what they're reporting to their therapist. And then their therapist is starting from that impaired data set to say, well, here's what should happen, as opposed to getting a much broader look at things to say, oh, well, it's understandable that you feel that way because of these things, but the bigger picture is what's important for the child involved. So to be a custody evaluator, you have to have very specific training on custody evaluations. Yes, there is an extensive amount of uh, clinical and uh, post-clinical training that you have to go through even to, to get to this stage of things. Uh, and there is uh, experiential work that you have to do. Walking into uh, custody litigation is like walking into a minefield for a mental health professional. You do not want to step on a landmine, hear the click, and then realize there's a problem. You want to uh, have some education about, oh, here are some of the common issues you're going to run into. Here's how you avoid stepping on that landmine. Uh, and uh, instead of hurting yourself and hurting a family along the way, you're able to provide them good services. Um, the clinical training model still applies there a lot. It is folks who have that senior experience training younger folks who are coming into the field, uh, much like you'd see, you wouldn't want a surgeon who's never looked at an operation before to come in and remove your appendix. You wouldn't want a mental health professional who's never worked on a custody evaluation before coming in to uh, carve up your parenting time. Exactly, I think that's a good analogy. I will, I will keep that uh, in my <laughs> mind. Um, what is the purpose of a custody evaluation at the end of the day? Like what are, like why, why do we have them and really what is the goal? I think the ultimate goal is to get information to the parents, the attorneys, and ultimately the judge, the trier of fact, about what is going on for a family and how that impacts the best interests of the child or children in question. And best interests is plural. Even if you've only got one child, they've got multiple competing interests. Mm -hmm. They can only be at so many activities, so many enrichment uh, programs. And so you have to make some choices there. And often parents have different values that are conflicting and figuring out this is a difference in values. One parent likes chocolate, one parent likes vanilla, and they're fighting over the best flavor of ice cream <laughs> is a very different case than one parent is using drugs and needs to be in a treatment program, or a child is in need of certain services that because of the fight, both parents may be overlooking. Very interesting. Um, what is the best way for clients to work with an evaluator? And so I ask you this question really from the framework. I often get feedback from my clients when we're in the middle of a custody evaluator is that they just can't read the evaluator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a it's a very different kind of human relationship because normally, you know, we socialize, you know, we can make niceties and, and be friendly, but an evaluator is in a very different role. And so let's kind of talk about maybe what, what people should expect yeah. when they're working with an evaluator. Well, to start with, I'd say uh, fearless honesty is really what's required to go through an evaluation because you're showing the evaluator, here's how I understand my world. And if you're kidding yourself about what's going on, then that's going to come through over time because the evaluator's job is to ask questions. It's to say, 
is what you're telling me consistent internally and externally? And then what alternative hypothesis can I frame about what's going on? Certainly every parent I've ever met comes in with their explanation about what's going on and why, but there's all these alternatives that if you don't consider them, you're not uh, broadening what are the solutions here. You're not looking for what's the best fit for the child involved. Um, and often that I can't read the evaluator, that's great because the evaluator shouldn't be committing to things mid-evaluation. Uh, one of the great things about being an evaluator is I get to tell people my opinion changes as the data that I have changes. I've had parents who've come in and they present very, very well. And I get law enforcement records back that show that they've been leading a double life and that there's a lot going on that isn't showing through. Um, I get other folks who they are presenting very honestly. They just have a really flawed way of thinking about what's going on. Uh, the child should be with me all of the time and they should never see the other parent because I'm the fill in the blank gender, because I'm fill in the blank other behaviors that are going on. They're simply inconsistent with the legal structure that they're arguing within. And again, this is a psycho-legal question. This isn't just mental health. This isn't just law, but it's that intersection of those two things that we've got to be dealing with for those folks. Yeah, and I and I what just brought to mind is, you know, so so in so many human relationships, it's about whether or not the person likes you, maybe, mm -hmm. or and in the legal context, it's not. I mean, this isn't about whether the judge likes you, it's not whether the custody evaluator likes you. It's what's the what is the data gonna show? Yeah. One of the, the cases that always sticks in my mind is I had a very hard time writing a report. It involved a parent who I just was not in sync with my uh, set of interests, values, and all of that, but they were the parent who really understood this child's needs and they were the best fit for this child in terms of parenting them. They just weren't somebody I was ever gonna go to a ball game with anytime <laughs> soon. Um, and so that's something you've gotta be aware of as an evaluator. It's not about who presents well, Often people who are very toxic present well at first blush. Right. Um, and it's only when you dig down a little deeper that you get into, oh, but there's this thing going on and there's these other things going on. So let's talk about that process. Like how does that work? Um, what is your process for maybe meeting with people and then gathering the data? Mm -hmm. What kind of data are you gathering? Well, and a lot of evaluators do things a differently. There's a, a certain realm of acceptable practices. I meet individually with each parent initially because I don't need to stick parents together and have them fight in front of me to know that there is a fight going on. Kind of by definition, uh, that's happening along the way. I want them to be free to open up to tell me their views about what's been happening. And I guess even before then, I am soliciting through my intake paperwork, I'm orienting them to, here's what I'm gonna be asking about, here's the things I want you to be thinking about. Um, and I do a combination of uh, both verbal interview, and I'll see folks three, four times individually for um, usually a couple hours at a stretch uh, to go over uh, their views on what's going on to kind of form initially a framework of what's happening and then to get some of the background and to delve into what's been going on with the kids. I'll also ask them to give me written responses. Some parents just do better when they're given time to think through and, and write out their responses. Um, I close up with 
um, getting interviews of the kids. And I'll do those in a home visit. Uh, a lot of people mistakenly call this process a home study. Uh, that's language from the 70s and child protective work. Um, most of the time, the home is not an issue. Uh, the one time that I had homes that were issues, well, one of them had gray water discharging to the side of a hill, and the other one I fell through the floor in the kitchen. Oh. The homes were equivalent between the parents. It was a socioeconomic issue. But in the home, the child can show me where they're living, how they're living. Even when one parent has moved out into a temporary apartment as they're transitioning through a divorce, that tells me something about how that parent is handling things, how comfortable does a child feel in their environment, uh, and how child-focused is that environment. Um, I often worry about parents who tell me, oh, my child is my life, and they're 100% child-focused. A healthy adult has adult hobbies and interests and activities, and they raise their children. Um, and so there's a balancing act to be had there. Kids have to get fed, dinner has to get onto the table, there's certain logistical things that have to be accomplished. And kids can often tell me a little more uh, competently about how that works in their home, in their home. They're able to point stuff out. They're able to say, oh yeah, here's the doll, the transformer, the this, that, or the other that I like to play with. Here are the games or the books or the videos that we like to do. Um, and then we get into what's going on with the kiddo in my individual interviews. Usually I'm talking to them, I sit on the floor in their room and we just chat for a while about how things are going. And I say this, I don't want to give away uh, everything, but there is a little structure to that. Uh, I spent years as a forensic interviewer for Child Protective Services. I did a lot of teen law enforcement work. I think the best evaluators are really good child interviewers uh, because there's a lot of nuance in talking to kids and making them feel comfortable. And I think probably the saddest thing about my job is when I get kids who break down crying with mm. me, talking about no one is listening to me. I'm getting tromped upon here by my parents, essentially. Um, there's a great phrase. Um, it's an East Indian proverb. When elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And a Aww. lot of times these poor kids are talking about mom and dad are always yelling at each other at exchanges or why, you know, is one parent being so mean to the other? And oftentimes their perceptions about what's happening. The mean parent may be the one that's protecting the kiddo from a drug abusing co-parent, but how is that playing to the kiddo? What's being talked about there? And what does that kid need to heal and move forward in a healthy way? Very interesting. I, I know um, one of the things we were just talking about a little bit earlier, but you know, when you are talking with the kids, one of the concerns I often hear from my clients is that you know the kiddo is going to be coached to fear about that the other parent is oversharing information or is really kind of priming the child to for the meeting with the evaluator. Um, I guess the the twofold question is: um, Can you tell? How do you tell if a child's being coached? And then and then to follow up with that, really, how sh what should parents be saying to children? What are what are sort of healthy boundaries to be discussing with kiddos? You know, kind of where they're at in the process. Well, you can often tell a kid's been coached. I don't want to pretend that we're psychics out there. Sometimes kids are coached and we don't learn about it at uh, the time of the interview. Sometimes I, I learned of cases where it's come out, the kids have been coached and nobody could tell that. But there are so many kids that come in, uh, what I refer to as spring-loaded. You go in and you're like, oh, hi, I'm Dr. Rob. I think I told you that before. And the kiddo blurts out, my parents told me I should tell you da 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 And they're just 
full of information that they're keeping in their short-term memory that they just need to get out because they're feeling that pressure. And like, oh, well, tell me more about that. There are a lot of kids as you start talking to them that reflect the exact same phrasing that their parents are using. Or they're, when you get the six-year-old who's talking about points on the mortgage, uh, you know that they've been getting overexposed to adult information. Are they getting coached? Maybe yes, maybe no. You get those parents who turn their child into their confidant and over coffee at breakfast, there's the parent is spilling their guts about the breakdown of their adult relationship. And the kiddo can't really process that, but they don't want their parent to be in pain anymore. And so they're trying to help along the way, but their little shoulders can't carry those kind of burdens. And I think that's the big piece to tell kids is that the adults are taking care of things and that the adults will let them know when there's a new plan. Here's the plan today. We're working on it. Even if working on it means going in front of the man or the woman in the black dress and being told how to parent, that's a way that adults work on things. And that's what kids need to be reassured about is we're your adults, we love you, and we're taking care of you. We're just figuring out the plan for doing that long-term. I think that's um, such such a good message for people. And I, I hope they hear it because it's it's not always natural, um, you mm -hmm. know, when, when you're going through the, the big transition that divorce brings. Um, sometimes oversharing happens, but I think if people can be more aware and really listen and, and hear it from the child's perspective, it can be really helpful. Um, what do you see as some of the biggest mistakes that people make in the custody evaluation process? I think probably the first one is not being able to take a look at their own role in a situation. The person who comes in and says, after a 15-year marriage that's produced three children, I knew on day one when I met them that they were a terrible parent. You have to ask yourself, and yet you courted them, <laughs> married them, and produced three offspring. What's that say about what, what was going on in that relationship for you there? As opposed to the folks who come in and, you know, we grew apart and we had these different goals and I recognized that we were trying to hold this together as best we could. Um, if they're able to take a more realistic view of themselves, that makes my compare and contrast easier because I'm not having to wade through, is this self-deceptive enhancement, which is the fancy word for denial and just not <laughs> being able to say, you know, oops, I'm human, I make mistakes. Um, or is this a manipulation? A lot of times people get divorced because of manipulative relationships. And if something is continuing to be manipulative in the divorce or even in the post-divorce modification process, uh, that can come through really clearly in the long run. And it's not good to try to manipulate your co-parent. It's good to try to approach healthy boundaries with your co-parent. What, uh, what are some good tools and resources for parents who, you know, maybe they're having a breakdown in communication mm -hmm. or, you know, they're kind of entrenched in these old patterns, maybe some manipulative patterns. What, what, what should parents do who find themselves in that situation? Are there, are there counselors or other, other roles that professionals have that can really help them? There are, are a huge number of resources. I think the first thing you've got to do is look for resources that are about co-parenting. Uh, this is therapists, this is 
parenting educators who are familiar with court-connected families because it is a very different paradigm. Uh, there are resources out there that I and my colleagues have put together, like uh, coparentingtexas.com has a lot of links, resources. You'll find most of us that do this work volunteer a lot of time trying to teach people how to do things better before we ever get involved with cases. Um, because we want folks to do better. We want kids to do better in the long run. Um, individually, finding a therapist who is aware of court-connected issues and is going to not only support, but help confront you about things. Mm -hmm. The therapist who says nothing but poor you <laughs> and it's all somebody else's fault may not be the person who you need to be seeing if you're in a co-parenting situation because that doesn't give you any new tools to deal with things. Um, if you have a co-parent, and, and this is whether you're married or divorced or never married, um, who is wanting to work on issues, you can find a good family therapist who's trained in forensic issues. Most of the parenting facilitators who work with high conflict uh, couples post-litigation are trained as family therapists as well. Getting the front end stuff where you can voluntarily work on your problems so you don't have to get court ordered to be dealing with things and getting the other layers of costs that go along with that is often a good thing as well. And what what should people expect with like parenting facilitation? How, how does that usually work? And every parenting facilitator is going to be a little bit different. Like every therapist coming from a different school of therapy is going to be different. But often it is about teaching parents, here are some fundamentally accepted things about co-parenting. Things like keeping your co-parent informed about what's going on, using polite business-like exchanges, um, uh, sharing information in a way that's going to benefit the kiddo. And I think the best PFs are the ones that once we have everybody with a certain skill set, start talking to the parents about how do you implement that? And that may be asynchronously uh, using things like our family wizard uh, or other uh, email programs where you can monitor what's going on. It can be putting them together for joint sessions where you're working on logistical issues. A lot of times, I used the chocolate and vanilla analogy earlier, uh, a lot of PFs have to point out for parents, you disagree about a values issue. If your job is to go buy a pint of ice cream, well, we can get chocolate one week, vanilla the next, we can get swirl, we can get rocky road and everybody's unhappy. <laughs> what these families end up doing, they buy the Neapolitan ice cream, they chop the strawberry section off and throw it away. Whether that's wasted time, money, effort, uh, and if we can help people see where that's going on, then we can help them deal with new ways to approach that. A lot of times they don't even see it because it's right up in their face and yeah. it's too close. Yeah. And I think when you've been kind of repeating the same stories over and over and over again, it's, it's hard to see the, you know, to see it from different perspectives. Yeah. Um, so once the custody evaluation is completed, what should people expect? And let me, let me back up for a second. How long typically does the custody evaluation take? And, and so, and then, you know, once it's done, what will they hear from you? I would say the typical evaluation takes six to eight months. And a lot of that depends on parent availability, um, particularly when they're contentious evaluations, they take a lot longer. People who are uh, not willing to come in when they need to. Uh, I've seen folks that just won't respond for months on end. Uh, so that's a process that often drags out uh, unnecessarily. And I encourage people, talk with your attorneys about the solutions to that. I get a lot of folks calling my office saying, well, my co-parent won't send in their forms. What do we do? That's not something I've got a solution to. 
at the front end, you can get an evaluation done in four months if everybody agrees up front, we're gonna participate, we're gonna do this the way we're supposed to. Um, often that is people coming in when they don't want to. You're gonna have to take time out of your work schedule, you're gonna have to take time out of your vacations over the summer and prioritize the evaluation. But often four to six months is a reasonable time frame for something like this, because not only do you have all the interviews that go on, but you've got all the collateral records, the law enforcement, child protective services, therapists that you've got to get. And simply collating all of that takes a long time. I was just going to chime in because we mm -hmm. talked about the interviews that you do with the parents. We talked about the interviews you do with the children. And you just mentioned collateral interviews. So that's mm -hmm. part of the process is getting data points from others outside of your family, right? Yes. I, let's talk about that a little bit. Like who who are you usually hearing from and, and who make who are good witnesses to be including in your list of collaterals? Well, I always ask parents to give me three parenting references, people who know them and would be willing to speak for them. Um, and as some of our judges have said, you know, mama's going to love her baby. When your mother is doing your parenting reference, we know it's going to be positive. You're going to find friends who will say nice things about you. Those are not so valuable to me as what does the teacher say about what's going on for your kiddo? what's going on for your participation as well. And the parent who tells me, yeah, I work 60 hours a week and I can't make it into my kid's school like my co-parent could because they were a stay-at-home parent. That's a reality for a lot of folks and dealing with that reality versus the parent who worked 60 hours a week and said, well, I was always involved with school. And by involved, they meant they were reading the school's webpage and the <laughs> teacher doesn't know who they are. Uh, those are two different kinds of things going on that I get those data points. Uh, physicians, every kid's got a pediatrician. What's going on with their medical care is often an issue uh, for families. Uh, if kids have been involved with therapists, if parents have been involved with therapists. And a lot of parents treat therapy with a lot of shame in a custody evaluation. And I'm always perplexed by that because I am a therapist <laughs> at my core. Um, I believe people can do better by various therapeutic techniques. And so that's something that I encourage folks. If if everything is perfect for you, you should be in therapy because you're probably missing something. <laughs> and if everything isn't perfect, well, maybe you don't need to be in therapy, but there's certainly no harm in going in for a tune-up every now and then. Especially in the midst of a divorce when you've got such a big life change it's happening. Super so. stressful. <laughs> Often something parents have no skill at. They've never been divorced before. They don't know what the process is. And so having somebody, again, a therapist who has experience dealing with that. I've seen so many therapists do such harm to families because they just don't understand the difference between marital therapy and divorce therapy. Yeah. Um, I see VA records. I see tons of other stuff that comes in that is often very probative about what's happened historically that's led them to this point. Today, things are going really badly, but what happened five years ago that brought us to this point? Mm. What happened in your background sometimes as well? Um, 
people don't spring full formed from the head of Zeus like Athena in the, <laughs> in the mythological stories. Uh, they have a place that they came from. They view things the way they do for a reason. And understanding that, making meaning of that is often a big piece of getting those outside records too. And so all of this information is tied up in a final report. And of course, I've had the benefit of seeing that report. But tell us a little <laughs> bit about what, you know, what the report contains and, you know, what what people do with that. A, a good report is going to contain an outline of everything the evaluator has done, who they've talked to, who they've gotten records from, who they've interviewed uh, in terms of you know the whole process is outlined there. And then you've got summaries of that data. Uh, here's what parent A told me. Here's what parent B told me. Um, there's a balance uh, in terms of thoroughness and what is really a good summary and what is overly broad. Uh, and it's the old George Carlin joke about everybody who is going faster than you on the highway is a maniac and everybody who is going <laughs> slower is a jerk. So you have to balance that out. Everybody's going to have a different style. But the goal is how do we summarize the points that are salient to the court? I can tell you that step parent said the exact same things as the parent that they're married to in about two sentences. I don't need to rehash all of that if they're giving me essentially the same data over and over again. And a good report spells out conclusions. It's like math. You have to show your work. Uh, and if you can see, oh, we had these data points, we came to these conclusions based on it, and those conclusions led to these recommendations. You can disagree with the logic sometimes, but at least you understand how you got there. That shouldn't be a, a mysterious process for anybody. Great. And so then they get the recommendations. And as an evaluator, you are making recommendations mm -hmm. as to possession and conservatorship and parenting time. Yeah, and the older I get, the more I tell people parenting time is often like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, if the boat is going to sink, who had the first class seat when it went down is not the issue. It's how do you fix kid is failing in school, kid is struggling with suicidal ideation or their own drug abuse. A lot of times those are the critical issues. And then the parenting time arrangements fall out from there often. Uh, and even you know your basic expanded standard access plan, depending on how you count overnights and awake time and who's in school and work. Uh, if you are a parent who has worked from home with a flexible schedule and you've got an expanded standard schedule, you may be seeing your kid more than the parent who is is the quote primary parent and that's often what folks are fighting about is they want the t-shirt that says primary parent right. at the end of the day uh, and I always put in my reports the parent who should be able to designate the child's primary residence that's for school that's for the city softball league that's where do you register for the draft those are the kind of things it's not the primary parent it's what address are you using for those kind of things. Exactly. I think a lot can get tied up in that label. As we kind of come to an end of our time, uh, what message of hope do you have for families who are, you know, in the midst of custody disputes and facing a custody evaluation? In the end, parents love their kids and the evaluators know that. They're not taking away the kids. I see so many parents who are, I'm going to have my kids taken away from me. No, we're going to allocate some parenting time here. This is not the kids are going into foster care. This is not the state's going to terminate your parental rights and put them up for adoption. Divorce means change. 
and it means you're going to have a different schedule and it is going to be hard for a lot of people not to see their kids every night at bed to tuck them in but that is part of the reality that they're facing but kids do well if parents approach divorce in a healthy way and even if only one of the parents is taking that healthy approach if you can be that healthy co-parent, your kids will benefit and you'll get to deal with that reality and the evaluator will see those things, hopefully. It's a great message. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed our time together, I hope you will click below to subscribe to our channel and tune in for other episodes. Uh, and also, if you want to learn more information about Dr. Aaron Robb, we're going to include a link to his website and his bio, and you can read all about his outstanding credentials. Thank you so much for joining us. <music>